No lies. No distortions. Just the facts and the truth about issues that matter. Facts First with Christian Esquera. Good evening, I'm Christian Esguera. Welcome to tonight's episode of Facts First. Uh, this is a uh, three times a week program that we have. Uh, usually we uh, speak, we do code switching on this program, but for tonight we're going to speak in straight English because our uh, very special guest for tonight uh, is someone very knowledgeable about the problem of disinformation, which is our topic for today. Uh, he is a Frenchman. And uh, still, if you have questions uh, for him, because the problem of disinformation is very pervasive, and I suppose based on your reactions uh, after we uh, launched the uh, or posted the publicity materials about this particular episode, a lot of people engaged already. Uh, many comments were posted as well as questions. But keep those questions and comments coming uh, during the uh, the program. We devoted the entire program for this particular topic of disinformation and how bad disinformation has become here in the Philippines, especially in light of the recent election campaign, the May 9, 2022 elections. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce our special guest for tonight. Uh, he is the... Um, Chief of Party of the Initiative for Media Freedom. He is also the Country Director of Internews. I'd like to introduce and welcome, introduce to you and welcome to our program, Mr. Greg Kealia. Good evening, Greg. Thank you for Good joining evening, us Christian. tonight. My pleasure. Nice to be with you. Okay. Uh, Greg and I, uh, I think uh, we've been part of at least a, a couple of um, Uh, forums in the past month, right? Uh, we, we The topic was often about disinformation and how to combat it. Now, I decided to uh, invite Greg for tonight's episode because he has a lot of data that he can share with you, with us, which he had uh, shared during those forums that I mentioned to you. And I think this would be useful for those who are, would like to be familiar about uh, the problem of disinformation here in the Philippines. But before that, uh, perhaps uh, you can give uh, our audience an idea of what internews and the initiative for media freedom is all about, Greg. Thanks, Christian. So Internews is an NGO. It's, uh, it's an international nonprofit. Uh, we are active in around 100 countries, partners across the globe. And really, our raison d'etre, our main purpose is to support independent media and more generally to support healthy information ecosystem in our, in our partner countries. Um, And when it comes to the Initiative for Media Freedom, which is the, the main program implemented by Internews in the Philippines, it is a program supported by USID, which is essentially um, focusing on three objectives. The first one is to defend and protect media freedom, which include media safety, an important issue in the Philippine context. The second one is about disinformation indeed, and I'll explain probably a bit later how we approach this question. And the third objective is to work on self-regulation of the Philippine media sector. Okay, so let's go straight to the point. So uh, your group, in particular Internews, uh, has been conducting or tapping uh, other experts to help you in this research about disinformation. Let's talk about the problem of disinformation in the Philippines today as we speak. How bad has it become? As you know, Christian, the Philippines is, is really one of the first countries where, where the potential of destabilization of disinformation for political processes in general, for elections in particular, was noticed back in 2016. 
There is this famous quote uh, of a Facebook executive commenting on 2016 presidential election, um, describing the Philippines as the patient zero of the war on disinformation. We know that a toxic actor like the company Cambridge Analytica, which was deeply involved in misuse of data collected, harvested by Facebook, uh, referred the whistleblower of that company referred to the Philippines as the petri dish for his company. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the, the Philippines have, 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 has, um, has been a testing ground for disinformation operators uh, for unfortunately quite, quite a long time. Um, did it get better or worse? Uh, what data tend to show if you observe the evolution of disinformation patterns between 2016 election, 2019 midterm elections, and then 2022 elections, um, the indication is that disinformation is spreading, uh, spreading horizontally between political group, between stakeholders in general, uh, spreading vertically between various levels of elections, uh, from the national to the barangay level elections. Um, it's also um, another characteristic of, of the Philippine disinformation landscape is also the, the incredible diversity of types of disinformation because disinformation is a very broad concept, right? You, you can be talking about organic disinformation, um, you know, political supporters spreading disinformation, thinking it helps their candidates. Uh, you can be talking about uh, professionalized disinformation, disinformation operators contracted by politicians or by other forces. We ca you can be talking about foreign influences. Um, in the Philippine context, we have a bit all of this. Uh, so that makes that makes it a very interesting case study, but also a very difficult case study when it comes to uh, to tackling to combating disinformation. Okay. Aside from the diversity that you mentioned, uh, what else is with the Philippines that made it the uh, the so-called patient zero in this disinformation war, the so-called petri dish, or as you put it, the testing ground? Why us? There, there are really various possible explanations, and it's probably a combination of, of a bit all of all of those. Uh, one of them is definitely the, the, the internet penetration and the prevalence of social media. Uh, we're talking in the Philippines about an average of uh, 11 hours a day spent on the internet by, by uh, Filipino um, users, um, which is the longest time worldwide. We're talking about over four hours, four hours and 15 minutes spent on social media every day. Uh, here again, the longest time worldwide and twice the global average. Um, so that's that this, this huge prevalence of both internet and, and social media certainly plays, plays a role. Um, I will say I will advance the hypothesis that the fact the Philippines is an English-speaking country also play a role, uh, particularly for um, professionalized disinformation operators who want to test their method. Uh, it's an easy ground because people speak English, right? Um, and then I will say there are other aspects which which um, which make disinformation operations particularly attractive for operators here. One um, is, is related to the weaknesses of the, of the political model of the Philippines. The Philippines is one of the very few democracies in Southeast Asia, but it has some vulnerabilities. And one of these vulnerabilities is definitely the dynastic and clientelist dimension of the Philippine democracy, which means that elections are very much personality driven, which means that disinformation works particularly well. Um, and then I, I will add maybe a, a last uh, possible explanation, which is of course the geopolitical the geopolitical positioning of the of position of the Philippines, uh, its maritime position, which make it um, an attractive target for foreign. Uh, I think uh, there are also scholars before who mentioned the idea that the Philippines was considered as patient zero in this disinformation.
campaign and that uh, the operations or lessons that were learned from the experience here in the Philippines actually imported, right? Or exported. Uh, how, how true is that? Oh, oh, too, sorry. Yeah, how true is that? Uh, that the, that the well, operations that were conducted here in the Philippines were actually exported in other countries? What I can what I can tell you is that our humble level as an NGO, certainly we are learning a lot from the experience of Philippine organizations, um, civil society organizations, media, obviously, academic organizations. Um, there are quality and a quantity of research and efforts against disinformation in the Philippines, which uh, is unlike anything I have seen anywhere else. And we do use the Philippine experience uh, in our organization, Internews, to inform the design of programs in other countries. Um, I was recently talking to, uh, to a few friends, journalists in, in France, um, about the issue of disinformation, and there was quite a consensus that uh, there is a lot to learn, including for European operators from the Philippine experience. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Now, the fact that Facebook uh, was also made free in the Philippines, was that how big a factor was that? Well, that certainly contributed to the prevalence of social media. Um, if you look at um, Filipino internet users, uh, Filipino social media, internet users, yes, that's correct. Um, the, the, the ownership of a Facebook account is quasi universal. 99% of Filipinos who are on the internet have a Facebook account. Um, and as we mentioned earlier, the social media prevalence fueling obviously um, the potential of disinformation of, of the social media platforms it played a role in in um, in making the the, the philippines uh, uh, tempting ground a tempting testing lab for disinformation operators yeah. mm. but 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 is there also something unique about the philippine experience compared to let's say how disinformation campaigns are run in other countries in other territories I'll say really, in, in my view, I don't know if, if academic researchers will agree with me on this, but in my view, what is really characterizing the Philippines is not something which is necessarily unique. It's the scale and the volume. Or if you want to put it in another way, is the fact that factors which exist in various other environments are all converging here in one single country. Um, I mentioned earlier um, the, 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 the diversity of operators, of, of disinformation operators, domestic, foreign, uh, private, public. Um, I mentioned the, the spread of disinformation between various levels of elections, between various political groups. Um, the, the, the importance in the social media landscape here of micro-influencers and influencers in general, which, which have become a very important issue, a uh, very important vector of disinformation. Um, and of course, uh, the, the, the prevalence in the Philippines of issues which are not directly related to disinformation, but are both worsened by it and worsening it, such as the question of safety of journalists. All that mm -hmm. makes it. Uh, so it's, it's, um, it's, uh, it's a big mix of factors which makes the Philippines quite a unique case um, for people studying and working on disinformation. Okay, so what's unique with the Philippines is the scale and the volume of disinformation as mentioned by Greg. But how about the fact that there are certain state actors that are also involved in the propagation of disinformation? How big That's, is that a factor in the Philippines? 
that's not unique uh, to the Philippines, but that's definitely one of uh, of the elements of the diversity of operators I mentioned. Um, the involvement of uh, public figures uh, in this information campaign, and more generally on, on what we, we call um, um, digital, um, the question of digital safety, right? I mean, then if you look at the past election cycle or the ongoing election cycle, since we are in the post-election phase, there is another characteristic um, which, which, which relate to, uh, to the digital aspects of election, which is not disinformation, but cyber attacks. Uh, and when it comes to cyber attacks, you have exactly the same diversity of operators. You have cyber attacks whose forensic organization have been able, which forensic organizations have been able to attribute to private operators, private hacking groups, but you have cyber attacks um, which have been connected to IP address related to public institutions. Um, so both for uh, disinformation and cyber attacks, we notice uh, the involvement of private operators, of public operators, of Filipino operators, and of foreign operators. But, but for example, in the Philippines, uh, does Internews have any data or any idea of how um, how pervasive this uh, this involvement of uh, government, certain government uh, officials, personalities, or state actors uh, in the spread of disinformation? We do not have detailed data on this because that requires a level of, of forensic approach of disinformation, which which require technical means, which are out of the scope of what we can directly do. Um, what we are interested to monitor to monitor though is the use of disinformation by public figures, um, mm. whether or not they were the origin of disinformation. Uh, it's it's very interesting to monitor. Uh, the way those disinformation campaigns can be uh, repeated, can be amplified uh, by public figure. I take just one example uh, during this election. There was this uh, very problematic page, uh, XSOX, uh, which was uh, spreading disinformation related to uh, the electoral process, um, presenting forged documents as if they were leaked from the Smartmatic and the Comelec servers. Um, it even eventually led to some arrest by the NBI, by the, by the PNP. Um, that 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 page, that specific page, was quoted by by a senator, uh, Senator Amy Marcos, uh, during a session um, at the Congress um, as somehow an, a proof or a source or a valid source of information, um, indicating that there was a problem of fraud being. Uh, plan being, being organized, orchestrated by, by the Comelec. So that's a very concrete example of a disinformation online in a relatively limited uh, group. Uh, I think that group XSOX had by the end of January around 16,000 followers, but which gained uh, considerable momentum being amplified, being made public, being legitimized by a public figure. And of course, as a, as a senator, uh, Senator Amy Marcos is also the uh, chair chairperson of the Senate Committee on Electoral Reforms, right? So <laughs> that in itself puts more weight uh, in her credibility, or the lack of it, depending on how, how you look at it. I'm going to read a comment uh, coming from one of my former students. Uh, his name is George De La Rama. His question is, uh, how come other countries are able to fight disinformation and were able to elect progressive leaders, but the Philippines can't? I think this uh, includes a lot of... Uh, uh, assumptions, right? Uh, perhaps you can answer uh, a related question first. Uh, are there any other any country? Is there any country that is doing better in terms of fighting disinformation? And then we go straight to the question of George. 
I think there are interesting elements to look into in all countries, but what is clear, absolutely clear at this stage, is nobody has found the silver bullet against this information. Everyone is testing. Everyone, everyone is constantly trying to reinvent their approach and their model because this is what disinformation operators themselves are doing. They are constantly testing the system, constantly finding new way to undermine democratic models and the societies uh, they are targeting. Uh, and therefore, um, I do not know if there are countries uh, which are doing better uh, because it's difficult to assess what does not happen, right? Um, but what is certain is, as I mentioned earlier, there are a lot of excellent elements of reflection, excellent models, excellent experiences in the Philippine environment from which we can learn for the sake of the Philippines and for the sake of other countries too. Absolutely. Mm. Uh, but but uh, the, the other question is, for example, during the uh, recent elections here in the Philippines, do you have any idea of how bad the disinformation campaign was? What we notice... Um, both so internews we we had a, a, a modest uh, social media monitoring mechanism we deployed okay. uh, in december a few months before the elections um and we observe uh, the evolution of uh, of the trends of disinformation on all social media human monitors and i cannot emphasize enough how oh, it is important everywhere in every country to have human monitors observing those processes to understand um, the dynamic and the trends behind those disinformation operations. Um, and be it if you do that on short term, as we did since December, or if you do that on longer term, as excellent researchers like Nicole Curato, Jonathan Ong have been doing since 2016, the pattern is clear. The disinformation is spreading. Um, the, phenom the, the phenomenon of disinformation has not be, is not under control. Uh, this is a prevalent feature in all political processes in the Philippines and in electoral processes in particular. Um, we saw the percentage of election-focused uh, disinformation evolving rapidly, exponentially from one month to another in the last four or five months before the election. We were observing all disinformation, not only election disinformation, and the percentage of, of uh, disinformation posts and pages which were related to elections exploded literally in the months prior to the election. So, so there is certainly um, an increasingly routine use of this information campaign in Philippine politics, as in all democracies here again. Yeah, although technically disinformation campaigns are no are nothing new when it comes to election campaigns, Absolutely. but I think the tools, the platforms, the techniques, and the strategies, and the scale, uh, and gravity, and impact as well, those are the things that we have to look at, right? You're absolutely correct, Christian. And, and I think that's something we always need to have in mind. This information is organically part of political life, uh, organic, organically part of elections too, has existed as long as people have been trying to convince other people to vote for them or to choose them as the leader or as a chief. Um, what is new is the amplification, um, is the reach of this information campaign. And, and a factor of explanation there is obviously social media. Um, today, through a, through, through a disinformation campaign, you can not only ensure to reach millions of people, uh, while you will reach probably a few hundred without social media, but you can also 
um, make an audience captive uh, with that phenomenon, that phenomenon of information bubble, of echo chamber. You can make sure that people who are already convinced will be increasingly more convinced and will, will have less and less access uh, to alternative sources of information, which, of course, um, um, uh, strengthen the phenomenon, uh, worsen the phenomenon of polarization, which is also one of the features of, uh, of the Philippine political landscape here again, not unlike other democracies, but Okay, so um, in a while we're going to talk specifically about the the platforms that have been uh, that are being used to spread disinformation, basically to spread lies. But first off, I'd like to ask you this basic question, and uh, personally, this is a very troubling troubling question to ask. Are we losing the disinformation war here in the Philippines? Hmm. Um. I don't think so. I don't think I don't think it's it's time to uh, to decide who has won and who has lost this war. Um, the, the notion of war on disinformation is highly contested and disputed in in, in my field of work. Uh, um, some people feel that uh, the war the war-like terminology is not appropriate. Um, there are different opinions on this, and I, I won't enter that that debate. But I do believe we are attending a great battle for democracy. Um, of the scale um, that we have seen in the 30s and 40s, uh, in the 1940s, 30s and 1940s in Europe um, with the rise of fascism. That's the kind of, of threat we are talking about, something which is a vital threat for the democratic model. Um, we have a lot to lose uh, if that war, if it's a war or not, um, uh, um, is lost. So that's a priority in my view, but it's too early to say, uh, to say it, has been, it has been won or it has been lost. Uh, it is definitely the moment to reflect on what works and what doesn't um, and to see how we can do better uh, and to, to anticipate or to, to base our strategies on the fact that we need to work both on short term, because if we don't both work on short term, there won't be a long term for democracy. Um, if all democracies worldwide fall in the hand of populist authoritarian leaders, there won't be a second chance. Um, so on short term, we need to indeed contain as much as we can this, this terrible phenomenon, but we also need to reflect deeply on the long term uh, and how to better equip uh, citizens of our countries to resist the temptation of disinformation. Okay, there's a question for you here, uh, Greg. Aren't your team afraid of the possible actions that the incoming administration might do to NGOs such as yours? Um, we are a duly registered organization in the Philippines. We comply with uh, all the requirements of the, of the Philippine law. Uh, NTNU's work in, in complex environments, some of them much more risky for NGOs than the Philippines are. Um, war-torn war countries, um, countries with um, failed state. Um, in the Philippines, we have been able to operate and implement our programs uh, without uh, issue uh, to date, and we hope that to continue. <laughs> Aren't you being too optimistic, or is there really uh, some sort of fear or pressure uh, that you're feeling somehow? Because you're no, talking I, about I, disinformation, I, I, which is a very big problem here. No, but that's that's the thing, right? Uh, I, I think um, I do not want to be a vector of disinformation myself by by expressing more concerns than than we have been given reason to express to date. Um, 
if we are targeted by hostile action, I will be the first one to say it. Uh, but we haven't so far, in all fairness, and, uh, and, and we genuinely hope to continue. Uh, I think one, one key aspect for, for any NGO country director, for any organization, Antanus or another in any country, one key aspect of our jobs is to make sure that we fully comply with legal requirements. So don't, we don't, uh, because we don't give any pretext uh, for legal harassment, for lawfare against our organization, uh, and that we will continue to ensure that we are fully compliant with all aspects of the Philippine law. Uh, and for the rest, you know, I mean, we, if, we, if we are targeted by um, by hostile campaigns, we, we will uh, we will act on that moment. But uh, at this stage, everything's okay. Thank you for the concerns. I appreciate it. <laughs> So far, so good. And by the way, I think you were stationed in Myanmar, right? So I was in Myanmar uh, before being in the Philippines, correct? Yeah. You were in Myanmar, so so you're not used to challenges, uh, to say the least. <laughs> Voila. Okay. <laughs> Voila. Okay. Now, how about this? Uh, give us an idea of as to whether, um, of how big a factor was the disinformation. Uh, campaign was in the outcome of the recent elections here in the Philippines. Do you have any um, somehow data uh, related to that? Because I think there's a common question people have been asking that perhaps our choice, especially for the national positions, might have been affected heavily by a lot of disinformation campaigns over the years. Hmm. Look, I think very honestly, it's virtually impossible to say. And I will even say that uh, any analyst, any NGO uh, who will claim they know the answer to that question, be it in the Philippines or elsewhere, will probably be presenting assumptions as facts because we do not know. We do not know how people form their opinion. Uh, it's extremely complex and it's a, probably a combination of various factors. Was there disinformation in these elections? Absolutely. Uh, did we notice that disinformation campaigns were implemented to whitewash some part of the past of Philippine history, such as the martial law? Absolutely. Uh, could that contribute to, um, to the change of perception of the voters for one brand versus another brand, uh, if, I can, if I can qualify as that, the candidates in these elections? Probably. Uh, but were they, were they sorry, other factors? in these Philippine elections or other democratic elections affected by disinformation across the globe recently? Absolutely too. Uh, we know, for example, that um, the grotesque economic inequalities affecting societies like the Philippines and other democratic societies play a role in that frustration of, voter, uh, of voters and, and what some people have called the revenge vote, uh, you know, voting for what seems to be the most radical change, uh, voting to, to what seems to be the, the greatest punishment for what is the perceived elite. Uh, all those factors play a role. Um, I think it's fair to assume disinformation play a major role nowadays in, um, in the way the public opinion are formed, are formed in democracies. Um, but it's impossible to quantify. Okay, let's go to the specific platforms that have been uh, that are being used to spread lies or disinformation. Uh, for example, we have uh, YouTube, we have Facebook, we have uh, TikTok. Right? Talk to us about the specific um, advantages or unique uh, qualities or features that somehow make each of those platforms more um, very useful for people who would like to spread lies. For example, Facebook. Hmm. 
Well, I, I think um, there, are, there are common patterns between various platforms when it comes to disinformation. And what we see a lot in 2022 is disinformation platforms using, disinformation campaign using multi-platforms approach, uh, multi-platformed approach. So starting on one social media, for example, Facebook, and then being amplified on TikTok, on Twitter, on YouTube. Uh, what we do notice certainly is the rise of video as a support for disinformation. And it has at least two possible explanations. One is it is attractive to, um, to, to the consumers of information and disinformation, but also it is much more difficult to monitor. Uh, there are hundreds of ways to hide disinformation in an otherwise perfectly acceptable video, which will fall uh, which, will, which, which will really pass the screening of algorithm and not be detected. Um, so we see a lot of uh, video-based information, more and more of it. We see the evolution really on a monthly basis in the pre-electoral period. And some platforms are better equipped for video support than others. Um, TikTok has seen a major rise of disinformation um, for, the, for this election, for example. But in general, what we see is the same disinformation operators, notably the largest one, are present on all social media, have accounts on all social media, and adapt their messages to the various uh, platforms and support. But are they yeah, equal in significance? Uh, I mean, the, the, the platforms that are used for disinformation, or for example, uh, TikTok has become the, the main battleground for disinformation, so to speak. Has it taken over, for example, YouTube or Facebook? In terms of users, no. Uh, Facebook remain uh, the main platform. Uh, the main platform in the Philippines. Uh, YouTube is is getting close. Um, TikTok has been the most downloaded platform in the Philippines in 2020, but uh, has not reached the same number of users yet. Um, what what I think is interesting to observe. Um, is the way the platforms seem to have taken some lessons from 2016 elections. Uh, we have seen much more proactive um, policies from the platform in 2022. Is that enough? Certainly not, but much more than in 2016, much more awareness, much more action from the platform, partnership with news organizations, uh, partnership with INGOs like Internews, um, I can take also the example of the decision of Google and therefore YouTube to suspend political ads ahead of Philippine elections, decision taken in December. Um, so they, they are trying to do a better, a better job, I would say. Um, and on this, um, the biggest platform have been leading and, and the, less, the, the, the less used platforms are following, but essentially following the same models, trying to build partnership with civil society and Philippine media organizations. Okay, you, you mentioned the, um, the the more prevalent use of uh, videos for disinformation. Can you can you cite examples of how um, somehow a seemingly innocuous video can be used for disinformation? Are we talking here of let's say simple videos about uh, instructions on how to cook or how to improve your hair on a bad hair day, yeah. for example? And then in the middle yeah. of the uh, presentation, you can insert certain political content is that it it can it can absolutely be that it can absolutely be that and actually what you're describing is not only true at the level of the disinformation video the disinformation post it's true at the level of the page or, or of the um, disinformation profile uh in in several instances pages which have been created for completely non-political purpose um mom and pop blog uh, it can be a cooking blog it can be a sport coach suddenly uh, shifting uh, using their influence, their reach, um, 
to support a candidate. And I, I'll, I'll come back to this. Uh, but to reply your question specifically on, on how you can hide this information in a video, um, there are actually technical ways to avoid detection by algorithm, using background music, playing the video a bit faster. Um, but there is also one way which is extremely difficult to uh, to um, to contain because it's really at the limit of this information. It's it's the use of emotions, uh, video which won't necessarily have a clearly stated political message, but by the combination of certain images and certain music, for example, will generate an emotion around a political figure or an historical figure, which de facto make them part of the political campaign, even if there is nothing which will allow to directly consider that as um, as uh, falling under a campaign uh, strategy. So that's that's that. Okay. Ahead, sorry. So. So it's very difficult really to, to detect here. So basically, it's getting worse and worse uh, as days go by. And uh, I'm not sure whether we're equipped with, the, with, the, uh, with enough tools or wherewithal to actually deal with this. We're going to talk about the solutions uh, toward the, the end of this discussion. But let me ask first about algorithms. Basically, uh, is there any difference when it comes to algorithms on Facebook, YouTube, or TikTok? Uh, in such a way that they can uh, create more and more um, uh, echo chambers and manipulate attitudes and what be people basically see online. Um, I wouldn't be able to go into technical details here, but we know that some platforms, uh, Facebook notably, have been exploring way to um, burst a little bit the, the, the information bubble um, and expose the, the followers to, uh, to more diverse information in their feed. Um, one aspect I would like to mention, so also, also um, uh, continuing on your previous question, is the question of monetization. And that's for me one of the most alarming questions. Um, because concretely, nowadays, if you are a page, a brand, uh, let's say a sport coach, um, and you want to boost your number of followers to monetize your page, uh, to have more income, more revenue from your page, um, you can essentially make an alliance uh, and it doesn't even need to be discussed or stated. You can just endorse one candidate to bring the followers of that candidate to your page and, and make your page, the monetization of your page easier. Um, mm. And it can be done completely organically, which means there is no contract. There is no even need for any discussion between the political campaign strategist or the political candidate and that bloggers or that owner of a Facebook profile. It's just mutually beneficial. Um, and it doesn't even fall under campaign finance regulation. It's not accounted for. It is campaigning, but it's not accounted for as, as campaign finance expenditures. That is for me one clear indication that we will need inevitably a deep, profound reflection involving social media platforms and some sort of common regulation of social media platforms um, so that they agree on some standard to contain that phenomenon, because that is virtually impossible for electoral commissions to monitor that alone in the Philippines or elsewhere, be it the COMELEC or any other electoral commission in the world, cannot embrace uh, the rise of influencers as political stakeholders. Yeah, actually, <laughs> I didn't realize the monetization aspect for certain influencers. Uh, was that big a factor in terms of spreading disinformation until you put it that way? 
yes. I hope our viewers Absolutely. realize how big the problem is, right? So, so basically, someone who has a YouTube channel, for example, or a TikTok account, if he or if he or she wants more followers, basically the the, the politician, the candidate, the purveyor of disinformation can bring in those followers, and he he would benefit uh, because of the views, right? And Both then in the process, he would just have did it. Absolutely, both side both side will benefit. And to answer your question, yes, we we clearly attending a rise of um, micro influencers and influencers in general in the disinformation landscape. That's a pattern which was already noticeable comparing 2019 midterm elections to 2016 presidential elections. There are an excellent paper of uh, Nicole Curato and Jonathan Ong on this. Uh, this phenomenon is even more obvious in 2022. And again, I do not think that will be specific to the Philippines. I think studies in other countries, in upcoming elections, in other democracies will show the same the same trend. Um, Internews is about to start a new large research project with a team of Filipino researchers, which will be entirely dedicated um, to understanding the political economy of the influencer community and how they play a role in the disinformation landscape. So if we talk again in one year, I will have much more precise data on this. Uh, but absolutely, this the rise of influencers is very, very noticeable in the disinformation landscape already. Okay. Now, speaking of influencers, I understand based on uh, studies uh, conducted in 2016, uh, about the 2016 elections, I think they were uh, at that time they were talking of celebrity influencers, the big ones, those with big followers, and then later on the focus was on the so-called micro influencers. Talk right. to us about the difference in terms of impact. I think the the micro influencers were were more pronounced in the 2019 elections, right? Basically, when you say micro influencers, how are we talking here of a follow uh, of a follower uh, of a number of followers, let's say 1,000 uh, or fewer? I mean, what do you mean by micro-influencers? Could be 1,000, could be 10,000. Really, it's really a very broad concept. But yes, we are essentially talking about much more granular disinformation operations using much smaller influencers with smaller communities. That means um, messages much more adapted to a specific audience. Um, essentially, if you, if, if you, and that's again something which was probably first noticed in the Philippines, which which I do not think is specific to the Philippines. If you look at at the at the pattern of, of evolution of who are the disinformation operators from 2016 to 2022, we are moving from large PR firms. Uh, which contract for what is presented as a political strategy and political campaign developments, um, which are conducted um, disinformation operations for contract, which can be in the probably in three figure in six figures um, in USD in US dollars uh, contract. When we shift to micro influencers, we're talking about people which either are not paid at all because of monetization or can be paid $50, $100, but hundreds of them, possibly thousands of them, uh, with, again, much more granular messages and much more widespread reach, um, and also making the work for organizations involved in trying to track and identify and name disinformation operators, like in 10 years, much more difficult because we have to deal with, with thousands of operators instead of just a few. Mm, you don't have, in terms of exacting accountability, there are a lot of people to go after, right? How about, you know, Viber is very popular in the Philippines, and we know that Viber or uh, chat groups are also being used to spread this information. Um, that um, is correct. As I see, they, they, yeah, go, go, ahead, go ahead, go ahead. No, no, please go ahead. No, no, sorry. 
Okay. I, I was going to say I, I that see it's... <laughs> Okay, <laughs> go ahead, sorry. You go first. <laughs> okay, okay. I mean, uh, Viber is very popular in the Philippines, although not necessarily as popular in other countries. Uh, or, or in other countries, they're not exactly as popular as Viber is in the Philippines. But, I mean, the, the, credibility, the credibility of certain members of a Viber group can also add to the spread of disinformation, right? For example, you have an alumni group, uh, graduates of a particular school, and then uh, someone they look up to uh, shared a piece of disinformation in that Viber group. That can also spread, right? And then the credibility of that person to that particular group can add to the... Uh, Credibility uh, of the of the disinformation, right? I mean, what kind of problem are, are we seeing here uh, in terms of uh, private messages? You're talking messages? about a very specific. I feel you have a specific example in mind. Now you're making me curious. Um, <laughs> but yes, you're right. You're right. Wall gardens, um, messaging apps, are are one of the front line of the work of disinformation. We need to do much more and much better on this. Uh, it's much more difficult to, to 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 access, obviously, for the obvious reason that what those apps are selling are secured encrypted information. Uh, it's not public, uh, but we know, uh, and there are clear data showing that um, messaging apps like WhatsApp have played a considerable considerable role in in spreading disinformation in some elections. India is one example. To the extent that, if my memory is correct, uh, WhatsApp had to take specific uh, measures. Uh, in India, by limiting the number of time um, a message could be shared um, to avoid uh, the misuse of their services for for this information. So that's definitely another another um, another uh, type of platforms on which we need to do much more and much better. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Now let's talk about solutions. Okay. Very specifically, yeah. uh, usually a lot of people see the effort of uh, news organizations. Uh, together with the ACADEM and other uh, members of civil society uh, in terms of addressing the problem with disinformation through fact-checking. Honestly, is it working? And is it enough? That's a good question, and that's a difficult one. Um, as I mentioned earlier, there is no silver bullet against disinformation, and fact-checking is not a silver bullet either. Do I believe fact-checking is necessary? Absolutely. Well, first, there is a key principle we need to to really uh, have in mind here. The whole principle of disinformation is to undermine the very notion of truth, um, is, to, is to build this kind of post-truth world uh, some authoritarian leaders have been dreaming about. And fact-checkers have a frontliner role uh, in keeping truth alive, uh, in keeping the notion of truth and the notion of, of data-driven uh, truth, uh, of fact-based truth alive. Um, Furthermore, um, because there were so many questions about whether fact-checking was working or if fact-checkers were only talking to an echo chamber, there have been some recent studies, um, recent international studies, looking at the efficiency of fact-checking. And those studies confirm that uh, on communities exposed to fact-checking, compared to communities which were not exposed to fact-checking, fact-checking was playing a role in spreading, in slowing down, actually, the role of disinformation in a relatively minor way, uh, confirming that it is not enough, but nevertheless was contributing to, to, to slow down the spread of disinformation. Now, when you look at those data, you need to look at those data, having in mind another set of data, um, which was that study some years ago, which um, tried to, um, to measure the pace of uh, spread of an information, 
on social media and found out that uh, lies were spreading, I believe, six times faster than facts on social media. Uh, that makes the volume and the speed of disinformation fact checkers have to deal with obviously uh, absolutely uh, uh, impossible to tackle by fact checking only. But we do need fact checking. I'm absolutely convinced about that. In my view, that's one part of a very large toolbox we need to, um, and I'm happy to tell you more about some of the tools we, we, we implement here in the Philippines, we use here in the Philippines, but fact-checking is a key tool, but it must be part of a, of a toolbox. I cannot emphasize enough, there is no silver bullet against this information. We need to constantly test and invent new solutions. Okay, we'll talk about each of the uh, tools that you're talking about because uh, Internews has come up with this uh, set of proposals to better fight disinformation. But speaking of uh, fact-checking initiatives, I think um, there's also a consciousness uh, more recently coming from news organizations to do fact-checking using the, the Filipino language. And also one Absolutely. problem is that there's this sustained uh, effort to discredit uh, the mainstream media meaning the legacy media, the, the news organizations, established ones, uh, to the point that people don't... There, there are a good number of people who don't necessarily uh, bother to read the fact-checking articles anymore. Because once they see that it was... They automatically say that uh, it's not something to be believed, right? I mean, it's how do you deal with that? Yeah. There's a sustained attack on the credibility of the media, and then to the point that uh, they won't even bother to look at the fact-checking reports. Yeah, no, this is a, this is a very important question, Christian. And Antonio's um, work uh, on a project called Philippine Fact Checker Incubator, uh, where we work with uh, existing uh, Filipino media, uh, which are going through a mentoring process to then uh, seek uh, accreditation of the international fact-checking network and become official fact-checkers. Um, and we talk very much with our uh, Filipino media partners, and there is definitely an ongoing reflection, notably after this election cycle, about how to better reach, and notably better reach people the less likely to uh, spontaneously go and read the fact-checking pieces. Um, and that requires, uh, in our view, a few things. One is to reflect about the support. Um, for example, I'm a firm believer that edutainment approaches combining education and entertainment uh, works work well, uh, make a product which can be a bit intimidating, a fact-checking fact pieces can be a bit intimidated for someone who is less uh, media literate or less IT literate. Um, using tools like edutainment, possibly meme, video certainly, all that can help um, new users uh, being reached by fact-checking. We should not... Um, um, abandon the idea of fact-checking just because the current support of fact-checking are not necessarily as efficient as we hoped in reaching the audiences which are the most vulnerable to disinformation. We need to rethink the support, but not necessarily give up on the principle of fact-checking. Okay, let's go to your toolbox. So you said, of course, um, he has been trying to emphasize to those of you who are watching and listening, there's no silver bullet to... Uh, to deal with this problem, which is very, very grave, even in other countries. But when it comes to this proposed toolbox, uh, what else can we do aside from sustained fact-checking? So aside of, or beside fact-checking and, and mind-busting, um, and I, I have to say here that I've been talking a lot about election disinformation, but those tools are important 
in non-electoral period too. Um, take the example of COVID-19, around which we have seen a lot of disinformation happening too. So besides fact-checking and mind-busting, uh, one key aspect is, for example, media and information literacy. And I would say for each of the tools I will mention, you could imagine a short-term approach and a long-term approach. Let's start with fact-checking. On, on the short term, we need more media doing fact-checking and quality fact-checking. But on the long term, what we really want is everyone to be a little bit of a fact-checker. Uh, first, every, every journalism students, but every citizen on the longer term. So here you can really combine a short-term approach and a long-term approach. Media and information literacy, same principle. Uh, on the short term, it's urgent, it's crucial, uh, to reach out to communities in general, all communities, and equip them with the tool to detect with disinformation when they see, to resist disinformation, to have a critical reading, critical thinking when they are exposed to disinformation. But on the long term, it's clear that we will not make the economy, if we want to rescue them, to salvage democratic model, we will not make the economy of a reform of educational systems and educational curriculum integrating the issue of disinformation and critical use of social media. The third tool, I will mention the third and the first one together because for me they are interrelated. There is a question of investigating disinformation and the question of algorithm accountability. What do we mean by investigating disinformation? We simply need to know who is beyond, beyond, behind sorry, disinformation. Um, a lot of work on disinformation is focused on the symptoms of disinformation, on the demand side of disinformation, on the consumers. And it's important to work with the consumers. But we need to be much more proactive uh, in working on the supply side of disinformation. Who are the disinformation spreaders? Um, are they private? Are they public? Are they domestic? Are they foreign? Uh, and they need to be exposed. People need to know who is trying to undermine their democratic model. Essentially, disinformation in an electoral context, is, it's, a, it's an act of sabotage uh, of, of a key infrastructure of a democracy, which are elections. Uh, it's, it's fundamental rights of the citizens uh, to know who is trying to undermine their democratic models. Uh, so therefore, it's important to research constantly uh, the, the issue of disinformation because we know, we know very few on who is spreading disinformation. And we need to constantly uh, continue those research efforts. And that leads me to algorithm accountability. Once we have those data, once we find who is spreading disinformation, uh, we need to have a very proactive dialogue with social media platforms about actions they can take, about their responsibilities to take action uh, to tackle disinformation. And that must be a very critical dialogue. You know, I think there are two excesses um, when it comes to discussing the role of social media in disinformation in the Philippines and elsewhere. One is to consider that social media are entirely responsible to fix the problem. And one is to consider that social media can do anything and should not be bothered with that. I think we here, here as on many other aspects, we need to reach some middle ground. We need to understand that there are key aspects of disinformation we cannot be, which cannot be fixed without um, proper cooperation with social media platforms. But in the meantime, we cannot rely exclusively on social media platforms to fix that problem. A fifth tool, uh, I have six to propose if that's okay. Yes, a fifth ahead, tool, um, which is probably the, the most historic raison d'etre of my organization, Internews, is simply to invest and support um, fact-based, data-driven, quality journalism. Um, and I would say it's even more essential now 
after this pandemic, uh, which to use the work of, of a famous uh, Filipino journalist has constituted uh, an extension event for Filipino media, for the very vivid uh, Filipino media landscape. Uh, we need to make sure that media which are doing work um, consistent with uh, quality standard of journalism, ethical standard of journalism, using data, using fact verification, have, are given the mean to, to survive um, economically and, and as a model. And there are various ways to do that, which I can explain more in detail if, if you'd like, but we are exploring a few right now in the Philippines, and some of them are really encouraging. Go Just to finish with... Okay, okay. Yeah, well, Go with the six, six first. Yeah, okay. to, finish, to finish with the, the, the toolbox, uh, the sixth tool is policy advocacy. And here really in the, in the broad definition of policy. Um, and that's a topic I'm always approaching very carefully because policy policy some awfully close to regulation and regulation in some environments some awfully close to censorship. So this is not what I'm talking about. Uh, every policy advocacy should be done keeping in mind the principles of internet freedom. Uh, but there are aspects um, such as self-regulation of the media sector, media citizen engagement mechanism, media councils, etc., um, which can be extremely useful uh, in the fight against disinformation. I'm done with okay. my toolbox. Sorry, Christian, I was a bit wrong. <laughs> no, no. Uh, I wanted you to finish the, uh, the the presentation regarding the toolbox. But for example, uh, when you talk about the uh, social media platforms, I think based on some of the comments I'm reading here, uh, some are proposing uh, a law that would exact accountability from those who are actually spreading fake information and perhaps something that can hold the big tech companies uh, more accountable because uh, it's their platform. It Those are private companies, but what they do is imbued with public interest, and they are being used to actually pro propagate lies. We know that, for example, Facebook, Google, uh, YouTube uh, in particular, and even TikTok have come up with um, certain remedies, but we know that they are not enough, right? What else, in, in, in concrete terms, can be done? What do you think? For example, um, automatic takedown of uh, posts. We know fa Facebook has been doing that. But of course, we know that uh, as in any uh, fight here in, in the disinformation war, it always comes late because of the fact that lies... Greg. Sorry, yeah. the, the connection was misbehaving a little bit uh, toward the end, but I think I got yeah. the gist. Yeah. Um, yeah, thanks to so Sky no. Cable. Yeah. <laughs> thanks to Sky Cable um, for the bad internet throughout this program. Okay, go ahead. Um, look, I mean, I can tell you what I think here, and, and just to be clear on that, it's, it's I'll express really a personal opinion. But uh, my personal opinion is, yes, we, we won't be able to... Um, to avoid uh, some sort of um, common standards through regulation for social media platforms. Now, what I deeply, what I'm deeply convinced about is it should not be at national level um, because that would be the open door for censorship. I think we need some international standards um, applied to all platforms um, to. Uh, to, to make that a, a level playing field between all the platforms. Also, because if you just apply that at national level, it just will trigger relocation of some platforms and won't change much. Um, but yes, I do believe that the, on the long term, or on the mid term, 
because it's not long term anymore, given the, the, the importance of this crisis. Um, there will need to be a very serious, deep discussion with social media companies about their responsibilities. Um, you know, if you own a if you own a bar, if you own a club, and you don't have the proper security at the door, or you don't have an aid kit, and something happened to one of your customers, you're legally responsible. Uh, yeah, if true. you are the, the owner of a publishing house and you are spreading lies and, and defama defaming some, fa some political figures, for example, you can be sued. Uh, none of that applies to social media platforms, really. And on the other end, they are the biggest club and the, the biggest publishing house. Um, so I think there is a reflection to have there, which in my personal view here again, is, is, is unavoidable. Now, on the shorter term, uh, one thing I would love to see social media platforms do more. First, I think what they are doing, engaging media organizations, is going in the right direction. But when it comes to, to the question you mentioned, the algorithm and its role in taking down problematic posts, uh, it's clear by now that the, the algorithms have huge limits um, between the disinformation posts, which are not caught by the algorithm, and the non-disinformation posts, which are false positive and are mistakenly caught and taken down by the algorithm, we know that we can't rely exclusively or even, even to the current level, which is not exclusive. There is a combination of human monitoring already and algorithm monitoring, but we need much more human monitoring. That's very clear to me. Uh, and that's something which we would like to see uh, a more concerted voice, a group of voice um, encouraging the social media platforms to do. Higher, higher, higher. You need media, you need the social media monitors, you need human monitors to catch this information on your platforms. Yeah, that's true. Because for example, if you talk about the, the standards used by Facebook, you're basically talking uh, with a computer. <laughs> you're not talking with a human person and that particular um, entity at the other end of the uh, of the line, for example, doesn't understand the context within which the disinformation is spreading uh, in your country. Yeah. So that's uh, that's that's the reason why you are proposing more social media monitors. Yeah. To, to basically yeah, better I, understand the context. You know, I, I I want to say because I really feel I I need to be fair. Um, I've been talking for some years now with representatives of the social media companies, people at, at country level like us, people based in the Philippines in, in the current in, on, the, on this case. And I'm actually optimistic because among the staff of social media companies, among the Filipino staff of the social media platforms you have, you have mentioned, there are extremely good willing people who really realize that there is a need to make better uh, to do better and are really conscious of their responsibility and trying to move the needle in the right direction in their own companies. They need to be supported. Um, but for that to work, it also means dialogue at much higher levels than, than we are here, dialogue between governments and social media companies, between international organizations, possibly the UN and social media companies, with the leadership of social media companies, for them to understand that it is a corporate social responsibility for them to do better on preventing disinformation. We know that social media companies never intended their services to be misused to undermine democratic models. They are not evil, but disinformation operators have found the weaknesses and the gaps in their system and are using and abusing those, those gaps and, and weaknesses, those flows of the algorithm. Yeah. They need to fix that. Yeah. 
Okay, that's true. That's true. I agree with you uh, in that respect. There's a comment from one of our viewers. We need laws to make them accountable. Basically, the purveyors of disinformation. I think this can also be a dangerous thing, right? Especially in the context of what you said earlier, when you put this at the national level. Because here, uh, for example, a piece of legislation that is crafted under a disinformation regime can actually be used by the very purveyors of disinformation, meaning the state actors, to go after the truth seekers, right? I mean, there are a lot of uh, possible uh, avenues for abuse as well, right? Yes, I, I, I understand the legal temptation. Um, and to some extent, I do believe, as I said, that at the international level, we will need to have some sort of, of regulation when it comes to social media companies themselves. But when it comes to criminalizing uh, this information, I, need, we, I think we need to be very careful. I understand the anger, the frustration these information operators can trigger. I'm myself very angry and very frustrated when I see people spreading lies without consequences, uh, notably during an election. Uh, but as you say, Christian, that can very, very quickly evolve into uh, very quickly be instrumentalized, utilized for censorship. Uh, remember the case of the Bayanian Act. Uh, the Bayanian Act uh, at the beginning of the pandemic had a provision, I think provision six or provision nine, I can't remember, uh, criminalizing the spread of uh, fake news uh, about COVID-19. But there was no definition of fake news. And when you don't define something as vague as this concept, it's pretty much an open door to, to to, to arrest anyone spreading information you, you're not happy with. Uh, so that's, that's a dangerous, uh, that's a dangerous uh, and very extreme tool, I would say. And also, the, another problem is uh, the, the, the gaslighting coming from those who are actually spreading this information. Because I don't know whether people are re realizing it now. Lately, uh, the so-called purveyors of this information are claiming to fact-check the fact-checkers. I yeah. mean, they're trying to I've destroy the one. facts. I mean, you've seen that, right? They're, they're, they're all over the place. So, I mean, how do you deal with a problem that mutates uh, uh, by the second? I mean, there are a lot of uh, avenues for them to spread their lies. And uh, I don't think we have sufficient imagination as we speak to be able to deal with those problems, right? But here, there's a question coming from another uh, viewer. Any international examples for individuals or groups who spread disinformation were made accountable. Yes, uh, plenty, um, but mostly I would say um, in non necessarily as democratic political environment uh, as as the Philippines. Um, there, there are there are plenty of uh, of countries where there are some degree of criminalization criminalization of the spread of disinformation. Um, again, I think we can we can. Look, uh, we can have a comparative study of legal frameworks, and actually, that's a very interesting research project we should consider having. Um, but what really is the concern for me is the, the definition of the concept of disinformation, the definition of what is fake news. Um, if that would be an easy definition, we would not be where we are today, struggling with this problem as we are. Uh, it is a very vague concept, and this is where I do believe in a more educational and less sanction-based uh, approach. Um, if we give the tool to citizens for critical thinking, for critical reading, if we put the data uh, and the facts at the center 
of the dialogue about what is information, what are news, if we teach the users to make the difference between an opinion piece, which is extremely important, but different of an investigative fact-based piece, for example, mm-hmm. we probably are going to have a greater impact than by criminalizing and face much less risk to see a leader we disagree with uh, using that piece of law against uh, against um, a journalist doing his work, for example. Okay. Now, of course, in terms of developing the critical thinking of the uh, of the people, of the public, of the citizenry, you would need uh, schools to be able to do that, right? The the, the effective uh, teaching tools as well as media, right? Now, in terms of uh, developing that kind of uh, critical thinking to distinguish between fake fake news and truthful information, how, how early uh, should schools start? And are there, are there best practices in other countries that can be adopted here? Um, as early as possible, um, no doubt. As on early that. as possible. Yeah, and, there, and certainly not waiting for university or for for having for dealing with young adults. Uh, but in general, I also think that more generally, we need to to uh, introduce political science in school curricula at a very early stage. What used to be called civic education is still called civic education in some in some countries in some educational curriculum um, we need to to young people are politicized at a very early stage nowadays and and i think it's important to give them the tool to understand politics to understand how government works to even expose them concretely to that you know we could imagine that school visits uh, in government government institutions observation of uh, parliamentarian session for example it's really and, and of course dialogue um, and understanding of all social media or algorithm work all that should be done as early as possible um i mean you know uh, kids are accessing um, um outlets and social media platforms at a very early age now. Um, but to, to reply to your, your previous point, Christian, uh, yes, definitely media and information literacy, critical thinking needs to go through formal education, but there are other ways on shorter term to, to re-inoculate some critical thinking um, in the citizenry uh, through media, through media, media and um, information literacy campaigns, which do not necessarily need to go through the formal education curriculum. I'll really say we need both. On the short term, we need media and information literacy, uh, helping people to better understand how the social media they are using works, uh, why they're essentially seeing one type of news in their information feeds, these kind of things. Uh, and then we need to invest on, on future generations, and, and that will take one or two generations probably to go there. Uh, so we really need both because we do not have the luxury of the time anymore when it comes to combating disinformation. It's an emergency. Mm. And by the way, the, the, does, uh, does your group have any program for training trainers uh, to be able to teach children in the formal education sector uh, we on do how not, to we, spot fake news? In the Philippines, we do not work yet, and I hope that will change one day uh, with formal education. Uh, we do have several media and information literacy campaigns implemented with our Filipino partners. Uh, we have a community online, Barangay Hub, uh, which is kind of coordinating those media and information literacy efforts. Um, we are encouraging a greater dialogue between citizens and their media. We have supported media citizen engagement councils uh, or mechanisms such as the Cordillera Media Citizen Council, which was created in December. Um, we have a disinformation, uh, sorry, uh, an information tipping platform 
for citizens, also called Barangay Hub. Um, that's that's um, a reporting tool for citizens to share with their community media the information they'd like to see covered. And we also have a tool, totooba.info, uh, which allows citizens to report this information directly to Internews so that we can process those data and discuss those findings with social media platforms. Uh, but at this stage, unfortunately, we do not have a formal partnership with formal uh, education institutions. In okay. the we're nearing we're nearing the end of our program and uh, i'd like to read uh, a couple of uh, questions and comments i think they're very relevant first uh this one i think this is a valid concern how much did long did the long lockdowns or the pandemic lockdowns um, affect the spread of disinformation and yeah another very good question from from your audience um in in our assessment considerably um the, the, the exposition of Filipinos and, and of everyone worldwide, uh, for that matters, to um, to social media as a quasi-exclusive source of information was amplified by the lockdowns um, and by the by the pandemic and the various forms of quarantines uh, globally. Uh, in addition, people. As we all know, we were all uh, we were all um, in that situation. We were all looking for information on the pandemic, trying to figure out when the lockdown will end, trying to figure out if there was the beginning of a solution. Um, and people were going naturally towards social media for that, particularly when they were um, locked down. Um, and of course, there was a lot of disinformation specifically about the pandemic and later on about the, the vaccines uh, circulating on social media too. Um, so. This, um, this is really a very good question because this pandemic has been both, both worsening the phenomenon of disinformation and weakening uh, democratic models for plenty of reasons. Uh, and one of them is that it's very difficult to organize elections in the context of a pandemic. Um, so it, uh, it has been too rough year for, for, for defenders of democratic models. Yeah. About the troll farms or the so-called uh, line troll networks, what would be uh, uh, an effective approach um, against them? Um, here, I think I mentioned at the very beginning of our conversation that disinformation is an umbrella concept, but in reality, it covers so, so many different realities. And, you know, even the concept of troll farms uh, cover different reality. Are we talking about... Uh, a team of uh, campaign activists contracted in the Philippines to spread disinformation for one candidate? Are we talking about a troll farm based in a foreign country and spreading disinformation? Depending on what we're talking about, the solutions will be very different. When it comes to foreign influence, my, my perspective on this is that um, it's, it's really a very serious uh, international action to support disinformation in another country and should lead to consequences. Uh, it's, it's again, for me, akin to an act of sabotage against essential infrastructure, as there is no doubt that elections are essential infrastructure. Uh, when it comes to domestic disinformation and domestic troll farms, uh, it is much more complicated and much more blurred line between a regular campaign strategy team and, and a troll farm. Um, but, but again, I, I don't know if... Um, if there are any other solutions outside of the toolbox I mentioned there, and I'm really open to suggestions there, but we need to work on both the supply and the demand side. On the supply side, we need to work with social media platforms so that they can take down toxic operators. On the demand side, we need to help the citizenry 
be better protect against disinformation operations. There is no way around. It, it has to be on both sides. It cannot be tackled from, from one angle only. Okay. Greg, I hope we don't mind that, but <laughs> a few more questions came in. No, absolutely. I think it's they're very relevant. You don't mind? You don't You don't have a... Absolutely. No, no, I really enjoy it. Okay. <laughs> we'll stay here until 12 midnight. No, no. <laughs> I'm joking. Okay. Uh, this one, there's a question um, here. I think this is very relevant. How can we as ordinary Filipinos help fight disinformation? Plenty of ways. Um, one is to report disinformation when you see it. I, I, I tend to see that as a, a citizen duty. Re, report it using the tools of the social media platforms themselves, but also tools such as the one I mentioned, totooba.info, the, the, the platform of internews. Um, I can assure you that those data are not just kept there and lying dormant. We report those data regularly to social media platforms, ask them to take actions after having verified, of course, that disinformation is actually disinformation. So that's one way to do that. Um, I think another way is really to dialogue. Uh, I, I really think that disinformation goes hand in hand with polarization of societies in, in, in modern democracies, and we need to keep the dialogue open. Uh, we cannot stigmatize uh, people who fall victim of disinformation. We all have people falling victim of disinformation in our families. I'm sure none of us here does not have at least one uncle, one cousin, one parent um, who is driving us mad because he's just repeating that conspiracy theory that he or she has read online. Uh, we need to keep a dialogue open. We need to keep those people accessing better sources of information. We need to keep in mind that they are not the culprits. They are the victims of disinformation operations. Yes, they can be utilized to spread further the disinformation, uh, but they are first and foremost victims because they have been deprived of a fundamental right every citizen should have, which is to have access to quality information. Uh, so we need to approach them first and foremost as victims of disinformation. Another way is to support media and information literacy, uh, spread the good, work, the good word about the importance of critical thinking, the importance of critical reading. Um, help your media when you can. Uh, we all have our favorite media. We all know that no media is absolutely perfect. Um, but um, we need to learn to make the difference between clickbait, hate-spreading pages, and, and journalists uh, um, adhering to, to, uh, to best practices and ethical standards, and we need to support them. And one of them is one of the way to do that is just to buy newspapers or to buy subscriptions. Um, so there are plenty of ways at, uh, where, at our levels uh, as citizens, we can uh, we can help the work against disinformation. Okay, this one. If the disinformation continues in the next uh, few decades. What will be the long-term impact of this? And I think a related question is, do you see a tipping point for disinformation? Or is this something we have to deal with uh, indefinitely or perhaps <laughs> for the rest of our lives? I think disinformation, a bit like global warming, is a, is a, is a calm down. Uh, and that if we do not act quickly, uh, it will be too late eventually. Uh, Recent uh, study by the organization International IDEA showed that 70% uh, of the population in 2022 um, live under either an undemocratic regime or a backsliding democracy, a democracy becoming more authoritarian. Uh, and this deterioration of democracy is 
not a new, pro, a new phenomenon. It, has, it is something which has been worsening over at least the past two years, and, and depending on which data you look at, the past five years. So democracies are losing ground. And I would say democracies are under attack um, by authoritarian regimes, by disinformation spreaders, by, by people who, who have not the best interest of the population of our countries at heart. Um, so it's, there is an urgency. Uh, there is a, and I do believe, I genuinely do believe that if uh, not much more is, is done against the information in the coming years, it will eventually uh, be too late. So that's one thing we try to do at our very small, humble level at Internews is really to raise awareness um, in the international community about the importance of this phenomenon and the risk it represents for democracies. And, and Christian and I were uh, not so long ago um, given the opportunity to brief a few representatives of the international community of the situation in the Philippines. And I think this is the kind of thing we need to keep doing. Um, this is a crucial time and this is a vital moment uh, for democracies. Greg, Kaelia, thank you for those uh, thoughts, those information that you uh, just shared with us. Our viewers are very happy with your with your answers, with your perspectives, and we're very grateful that you decided to join us tonight. It has been a very Thanks, fruitful discussion, but more importantly, uh, I hope this could help uh, not exactly solve the problem. Of course, that would be the goal, right? But at least minimize the spread of this information in the, uh, in the immediate term. Thank you very much, Greg, for joining us. Thanks so much uh, we'll for having me, and thanks to your audience for fascinating questions. Thank you so much. We'll stay in touch because this is a continuing battle uh, that uh, that needs the support and contributions from all stakeholders, not just internews, not just the journalists. But thank you, Greg. Look forward to that question. Have a good evening, everyone. Yeah.